This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Oh God, What Now, the podcast that would cage fight any other podcast, anytime, any place, if it weren't for a very busy schedule. I'm Alex Andreu. On today's show, Suella Neal, Legionella One. No sooner have the first handful of asylum seekers been escorted onto the Bibi Stockholm prison barge, in a punchline worthy of Armando Iannucci, they're taken off again after the water is found to be unsafe. And shareable, <laughs> snackable, electable content. Before he was PM, Rishi Sunak created created an online brand. But will the next election be decided on the doorstep or your auntie's Facebook comments? Let's meet the panel. Seth Tevo is a journalist, historian and oh God what now regular. Seth, Labour are in trouble with the Electoral Commission after receiving over half a million quid from an unaffiliated group. Um, It's bad news for Starmer, who's trying to outflank Rishi Sunak on transparency. How did this happen? Welcome to the weird and wacky world of unincorporated associations. Uh, This is the kind of organisation which has been described as the most anomalous group of personalities known to British law. And essentially, it is a route for dark money to make its way into British politics. We largely think of it as synonymous with the Tories. They're well known for groups like the Carlton Club, the United and Cecil Club. There was a story just last week about how uh, people who aren't British citizens can't normally donate to parties. They can donate via a company into the unincorporated association. Then the money gets doled out around the Tory party. But Labour do it as well. Um, to give you an example, run up to the last election, I think there was 600,000 in funding to the Tories that was identified th- through this route, 300,000 also to Labour at the same time. Now, this particular case is an interesting one because it's gone through uh, a group called the Barnes and Richmond Labour Club and Institute. It's a little weird because Barnes and Richmond are quite affluent areas, but they're also a completely moribund area for the Labour Party. I mean, there's no, no logical seat well, to spend the money. That's why they need a club then. <laughs> <laughs> an institute. Clearly. But no, it's, it's an area that's been a Tory Lib Dem battleground for decades. Um, and so the money is going to uh, Labour nationally. But it is a bit embarrassing for Labour, to put it mildly. Uh, one of the attempts a few years ago to try and clamp down on this practice was to try and um, force these associations to register when they were giving more than 25 grand a year. And quite a few of them don't. And this was a case where they hadn't done that as well. So we found out about it in a way that's rather embarrassing for Labour. Um, the Committee on Standards in Public Life has a long time been saying they want to clamp down on these organisations entirely. The government shows no interest in closing those loopholes. <laughs> Our person of the year, Time writer, Yasmin Serhan, is back with us. Hello, Yasmin. Hello. Your colleague at Time, Philip Elliott, has declared that Donald Trump is spooked and his rivals know it. Will it even matter come the primaries? And if not, why not? That's a good question. I mean, for context, um, for those who haven't been able to keep keep up with all the indictments, because I certainly have a head to check. <laughs> Donald Trump is under indictment for three separate criminal cases. He's actually potentially facing a fourth this week over his alleged um, efforts to overturn the election result in Georgia. We all remember that. So naturally, of course, you know, this doesn't look good, not just for his presidential standing, but also for maybe his personal freedom. And I think his opponents, now that they're smelling blood, are proving to be a bit more open to attacking who once, you know, was their fearless leader. Mm-hmm. We're, and as Philip wrote, you know, we're seeing this with Ron DeSantis, who's, you know, actually came out and finally said that Joe Biden won the 2020 election. You know, it it only yeah. took a few years, but that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also seeing it with someone like Mike Pence, who, of course, um, Trump's former vice president. There's no love lost there. So... I'm of two minds on this. On the one hand, Trump is leading in the polls still. He's still the favorite. He still kind of has the most control over the Republican Party. But as Philip notes in his great piece, which I'd encourage everyone to read, you can see from his social media pronouncements that he sounds more scared and more on the defensive, like he's backed into a corner. The question is, what does someone like Trump do when they're backed into a corner? So it remains to be seen. But, But I think, you know, if you're someone like Ron DeSantis or a Mike Pence or a Nikki Haley, 
you're maybe going to start thinking twice. You know, do I actually need to try to play nice with this guy? Is there anything for me if he happens to win? Or is he actually too far gone? And maybe it's time we just take him out for good. Hmm. But at least they're, they're taking the pot shots now. We're starting to see division. Mm. And frankly, he's going to have a lot fewer allies. I mean, who's going to serve in his cabinet if he's fighting everyone? <laughs> Our guest this week is another fine filly from the noble stable at politics, Joe. Ed Campbell, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Never been described as a filly before, but I like it. Ed, Nadine Dorries, and I could just pause there and <laughs> let you go. Um, the lingering member for Mid-Bedfordshire has still not resigned. The Standards Commissioner has decided she has not breached the MP's Code of Conduct by failing to turn up to Parliament in over a year. Uh, Chris Bryant is trawling ancient parchments to find some way of ousting her. A Sky investigation found her registered MP's office is now a dance studio. Um, she's out of the country and her daughter is still listed as a paid member of staff. So... Whatever happens to her, do we need to revisit the mechanism for constituents getting rid of an MP? What sort of system could work, do you think? Yeah, it's peculiar, isn't it? She's clearly a dreadful MP, but <laughs> not dreadful enough, I guess. I think which it's just it's just peculiar. It, just, it shows, I suppose... But she's never there, I <laughs> yeah, guess. Yeah, no. And, um, well, maybe it's, it's the absence. Maybe it's like... Um, Schrodinger's Nadine Doris. Maybe she'll come back and be good. We don't know. <laughs> but I suppose I suppose the good chap theory is kind of dead and buried, isn't it? The assumption that people in public life will behave appropriately because they are figures in public life. Um, she made a commitment to resign, which I suppose is like it's a kind of an odd thing to. It's like Turkey's voting for Christmas. Like it's 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 a real shame. I think there's a tendency to turn every kind of political scandal, a Westminster scandal, into like a Tory Labour psychodrama and quite Westminsterize it. Yeah. But there is like a genuine, almost democratic deficit in that people in mid-Bedfordshire are currently without functional parliamentary representation. If you imagine you had a really serious issue, if you were, say, a, a single mother or someone on who needed something, say you had a disabled child who needed access for something or like um, improvements yeah. in your who home. Who do you write? Who do you, who do you turn yeah. to? And because, because you're not allowed or other MPs aren't allowed to assist in other, in other people's constituencies. I don't know, do we need to install, to kind of corporatize Parliament? Do we need to have KPIs for MPs? Do we need to have performance reviews, a bonus structure? If you like, <laughs> if you go, to, if you have X number of surgeries, make X number of speeches, do you get free pints? I don't know. <laughs> Something um, I, I've talked about this on another podcast. I don't think we should be offering them alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. Maybe not. But um, I, th I think, well, maybe a novel idea is there is a functioning political party with a really uh, pronounced, but their, their whole their whole system is they don't come to parliament, and that's that Sinn Fein. So maybe uh, we, if you don't go to parliament enough, you are automatically put into the Sinn Fein mm. thing. And imagine trying to win a safe Tory seat as the as the Sinn Fein <laughs> candidate. I, th I think we need to go for the stick approach yeah. to force these. There's too much. Nadine Doris, she's a low unto herself. <laughs> Boats week is over, thank heaven, after the Ascension Island idea emerged and was dropped in the space of two hours. Lee Anderson told asylum seekers to fuck off back to France, then admitted Tories had failed in immigration. A 400 grand home office drone crashed into the sea, crossing stopped 100,000 in five years, following the highest daily total this year. And deadly bacteria closed the Bibi Stockholm barge after a grand Four days. The literal flagship of Rishi Sunak's Stop the Boats policy looks to be listing. This follows an arguably just as unsuccessful Energy Week the week before and looks to have already derailed NHS Week, which is this week. So what is going on? Is this the political equivalent of masochism? Or a Machiavellian attempt to take the sting out of Labour's attacks by government, opening its Mac and flashing the country with all its failures at once, while most people are on holiday not paying attention. Yasmin, another week when we have to open this topic, with news of migrants drowning while trying to cross. Reports out that the six people who lost their lives were from Afghanistan, does this expose conclusively that inadequate, safe and legal routes lead directly to crossings? It does. But I think in the way that all the other deaths that we've seen occur in the crossing in this past year and the years prior have, um, that's what's kind of so frustrating about 
these news items when they happen is that, you know, we know exactly what's causing it. We know that these are vulnerable people who are risking their lives to take these very dangerous routes, who are putting their lives in the hands of these smugglers to seek a better life. And to your point, they're coming from Afghanistan. Um, we know what they're probably fleeing. They're probably fleeing the Taliban. I think what's so sad is that, you know, where only a couple of years ago when Kabul was falling, these are probably the exact the kind of people mm. that countries like the UK would seek to help. Unfortunately, the legal routes, the safe and legal routes for Afghans no longer exist the way it does, rightly so, for people coming from Ukraine, of course. But I, I think that's, it. and by that I mean rightly so that it exists for Ukrainians, not rightly so that there aren't avenues um, for, for people fleeing similar horrors elsewhere. And, and it, it was always quite ludicrous, the Afghan route post-evacuation, mm, right? Because it yeah, requires you problems. to go outside the country to some consulate somewhere else and then go back in the country and wait for for someone to say, yes, you can come. I mean... It's nonsense, isn't it? I'm still in contact with one source that I remember interviewing when Kabul was falling in 2021. He was a Chevening scholar. So I believe he studied in Sussex and was kind of a leader of their alumni group in Afghanistan. And obviously this attracted the wrong kind of attention from the Taliban. And he and his family were, you know, he was petitioning, petitioning, emailing mm. me and scores of others, you know, ministers in the government trying to make a case that, you know, he's done a lot for the UK, that he should be able to go with the Chevening scholars, many of whom were thankfully taken out, uh, the current Chevening scholars. Um, he, and as far as I'm aware, last I spoke to him, he, his wife and his children were never able to make it out of Afghanistan. He could be the very same people that end up making the yeah. the very perilous decision to go on these boats. And and I think, you know, so obviously there's been a lot of response, you know, since then, people rightfully criticizing the fact that there need to be more safe and legal routes. Um, of course, I think it's easy for both the Tories and Labour to talk to kind of point the finger at the people smugglers and say, you know, they're they're the problem. They're they're, you know, giving people these dangerous routes. And and you know, that's true, they are a problem, but I think you mitigate that problem and you make people less reliant on them when you do provide safe and legal routes. And the fact of the matter is that the UK government hasn't been able to do that. This is just not sustainable. Patricia from Bodmin left Nikki Campbell speechless on Friday when she called into Radio 5 Live to say, it's very tough and I'm sorry there will be deaths, but that we shouldn't let boats land. These views may have always existed in the darker corners of pubs. But what does it mean that people feel they can now call into the BBC and just air them? The wording is is interesting that, you know, these deaths will happen. Um, it, it's very dehumanizing. And I think what, what unfortunately, what's happened in the narrative around the boats um, in the UK is that it's been about boats. It's not been about people. Mm. It's a lot easier to point the finger and be like, these boats, these invaders are coming in, these like, you know, physical vessels that are not human without thinking about the people who are on them, the the, the people who are, you know, the vulnerable people, men, women, children. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the government and, and even just the, the commentariat have a lot of responsibility, um, you know, should be taking responsibility for the way that that has been allowed to be spoken about. I, I think, you know, sh she's echoing the wording that we're hearing from ministers, from our radios, you know, not from wonderful podcasts such as this one, but, you know, this is the conversation we've allowed ourselves to have. Yeah. And I think the the further, the more we strip human beings and, and real lives out of it, um, the further away it takes us from having a real humane solution. Mm. Yes. Stop the desperate people is not as catchy right? a yeah, slogan, is it's it? It's not. And I and I I think she would struggle to to say, look, you know, women and children are gonna die, but we can't let the boats come in. I don't think anyone would say that. Ed, conventional wisdom would suggest that government directing everyone's attention to a complete skip fire over which it is presiding, is not smart politics. The Sunday Times, however, has one insider explaining the strategy as taking the fight to areas Labour is vulnerable on, even if government is on shaky ground, helps Tories dictate the debate. What do you think? Yeah, um, it is it's interesting because I think the tactics, for the tactics to work, it requires the British electorate to forget who's been in power for 13 years. Mm. You're saying these are the problem areas that we want to focus on, but don't don't <laughs> ignore it because <laughs> um, yeah, it's they are because August is why for British political journalism, it's a semi-smart play by the Conservatives to say, oh, today is this week, and then dictates 
the journalism around it. So we have people talking about it's Small Boats Week, Energy Week, now it's Health Week, and that is what's in the papers. And so mm. if people are paying attention to those issues, what's interesting is I'm not sure they'll have a cost of living week. They're not going to have, in that there's a um, poll in the mail on, mail on Sunday and a, pro, a list of priorities of, what pe- of important issues yeah. that people ma- that matters to people. Cost, 69% of people said cost of living. The next what the next highest one was NHS. 10% said immigration and asylum. 2% said trans rights. So it's a complete distraction tactic from what the Conservatives are actually failing on. The, the ONS figures for inflation are coming out on Wednesday and there was a little scoop in the eye that suggests inflation has gone down by only 0.1%, which is not what they would be hoping, and that it's going to go up next month because of this little bump in spending during June. So I think they're getting a cost of living week, whether they want to or not this <laughs> week. But, but, but every week should be the cost of living yeah. living week. Which it shouldn't, it. I, think, I think it's kind of ludicrous that it is dictated by government spin. And then also, I suppose, I want to... I'm going to touch on the areas Labour is vulnerable on because they're trying to paint Labour as like a, as if they're the political wing of Extinction Rebellion and just up oil when really they've probably got as much contempt for them as the Conservatives have. There actually isn't that much difference in terms of policy. Well, small boats, um, they've talked about, they've contextualised this, but they said they wouldn't immediately stop the use of the barges, mm. primarily because you can't do anything overnight. Labour aren't going to come into power and fix the country. But they're trying to make Labour seem a lot more different to them mm. than they are than they actually probably are. Um, on the BB Stockholm, um, Sky's Rob Powell has exposed a really complex timeline, much more than originally thought. Apparently, the results came back on Monday, were first communicated to the Home Office on Tuesday, um, but somehow ministers apparently didn't find out until Thursday. The health department didn't find out until Friday, which I find extraordinary. Mm. Steve Barclay was doing the media rounds on Monday going, it's not my department. Really? Deadly virus, <laughs> deadly bacteria is not your department. Um, does this have the potential to run more, to turn into actually a scandal of who knew what and when? You kind of hope so. But I think that's maybe having too much faith in the British media and the British and kind of the the mm. discussion around my asylum seekers. I think I don't know. A slow news week can turn <laughs> quite true. quite quickly, can't but, it? But but if, but if but if a lot of the if the media have been presenting these people as they are men of fighting age, etc., and to suddenly pivot from that using dehumanising language, the Home Secretary and well, lots of Home Secretaries have been using just really horrible language about these people and to go from to go from parroting those lines and creating kind of a fear of these people as like the bogeyman to then being well <laughs> we, we need to, we need to look after them yeah. I, guess, I suppose i suppose saying these people should not be exposed to legionnaires disease is actually not that they kind yeah. of tried that on sunday they tried to suggest that well, this just proves what <laughs> terrific care of them oh, we're taking yeah. how sensitive we are to their needs. Oh, well, that you removed them uh, from deadly bacteria only after uh, five days. None of them days. have caught it, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, as recently as last Sunday, actually, Robert Jenrick was telling the media the barge was perfectly decent accommodation. Steve Barclay, in his Monday media rounds, emphasised that nobody got sick and, <laughs> and migrants were moved off as a precaution, which I it's love just... that keep repeating this phrase. Are we hours away from Lee Anderson saying that back in his day we got legionnaires and never moaned about it? I think we're about <laughs> 20 minutes from Lee Anderson <laughs> and the strangest young conservative you can find scaling the side of the baby stock company. Was it just, it was um, led by donkeys scaled Michelle Moan's yacht. Yes. It's going to be Lee Anderson licking the baby Stockholm <laughs> and, <laughs> and proving, and then saying we could just plug the gap with the best asbestos or something like that. It would be... It's a niche corner on Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> Very popular, though. Seth, oh. do you think that Brendan... What a terrible introduction. <laughs> Speaking of Pornhub. Yes. I meant Seth is a niche. <laughs> um, Seth, 
Do you think that Braverman is actually quite vulnerable considering just how badly last week went? I, I don't think so. And it's partly because of this dehumanisation of migrants in the first place. But also, um, I mean, she may not be the brightest bulb on the tree, but there are plenty of cabinet ministers who you can say are not the brightest bulb on the tree. And Suella Braverman's Do great... Do trees have bulbs? What's going on with your metaphor? Christmas time. Christmas time <laughs> in August. Um the problem with Braverman is she does know how to throw red meat to Tory activists. She does know exactly what they want. And actually, the analogies I can think of would be people like Chris Grayling or Grant Shapps. You know, none of these people are thought of as prime ministerial material. But actually, they give the Tory rank and file exactly what they want. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I'm going to make a prediction here. I think the next Tory leadership election is most likely to be a runoff between Suella Braverman and Kemi Badenoch. Yes. Thank you for that, Seth. Sorry. <laughs> um, in many ways, Energy Week, the week before, went quite badly too. Greenpeace uh, were frozen out of talking to government for the stunt they pulled on Sunak's house. They said that Rishi Sunak will go down in history for failing the UK on climate. Um, by trying to open that divide on climate, does Sunak risk being out of step with public opinion, actually? Because all the polls seem to show... Terrific support for. So what's going on? I mean, firstly, I think it's a good thing at least they didn't try and run another crime week. Because if you remember that, <laughs> it turned out half the government had been preaching lockdown rules that week. So. There's no. time yet. I think there's one more week of recess to come that hasn't been assigned. But you're right on public opinion. Actually, Ed was touching on this as well. The idea that if you look, for example, at YouGov's issues tracker, something like the environment is actually number four on the issue tracker, I think uh, the economy is first, housing is second, and immigration is third. So they've not only managed to pick something that is not even people's main concern, mm -hmm. but they have a minority view on something that's a fairly low priority to begin with. So um, yes, they are trying this whole thing of going for a core vote strategy, but it's not even something that particularly fires up their core. Mm. And there's just there's so also so many extreme weather phenomena at the moment all mm. over the news. It's like you know, every time you turn the telly on, it's like that. There's a ticket tape running along the bottom saying they're talking bollocks. <laughs> Look at the world burning. Yeah, one of the things about this is how blind to the outside world a lot of the optics are because you can probably do this around March or April or around September, October and say, mm. look, climate hasn't changed that much. But <laughs> saying in the middle of December when it's 15, 20 degrees, you know, <laughs> oh, it's, uh, you know, the planet isn't hotting up or saying in the middle of summer, oh, no, 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 there's yeah. no sign here. Yes, I mean, data shows that we're lagging way behind the rest of the world. Uh, it has to be said after a strong start, Mm. But then investment into renewables dropped right off. Um, looking modern, live, dynamic was a, the key part of the post-Brexit plan. Is there money to be made by going the other way and joining a sort of more aggressive group of countries? If you're Theresa Villiers, then yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the government obviously announced that they would approve 100 oil and gas licenses recently. And I, I don't know, I mean, the, my understanding of kind of, so that's clearly pivoting the other way. Yeah. And it's something that environmental campaigners to Seth's point have called short-sighted, um, selfish. And, and you only really have to look around at what's happening in Greece. It's what, what's happening in Hawaii mm -hmm. to, to see the short-sightedness of it. Um, even though, yes, it's raining in the UK right now, that doesn't mean, you know, I, I think it's allowed us almost to be a little ignorant to the fact that continental Europe has been suffering extremely hot yeah. summers. And, and, you know, we're just kind of complaining because it's raining. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, their whole message is that, you know, this is, you know, reliable and accessible and ch crucially cheap energy. And I think that's a much easier sell if you're this conservative government in a period of cost of living and inflation that we're experiencing right now than to say we're going to responsibly, yeah. you know, invest in our future and invest in renewable energy. So I think that's probably where the like the the sort of cognitive dissonance lies. Um, but quite aside from disappointing, you know, many Brits, I would imagine it also wouldn't necessarily make Sunak and Britain look all that great among Britain's immediate allies. I mean, you know, which isn't to say that, you know, other countries aren't doing 
you know, amazing things on Climber mm-hmm. that they're they're much better. Mm-hmm. But certainly in a renewable investment, I imagine they are. And yeah, I mean, you know, next meeting he has with Biden, I, I would find that very difficult. I would imagine that would come up. I mean, hell, I would imagine his yeah, next. I think it will yeah. come up. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine his next like audience with the king. It would probably come up as well. Mm. I'd be like, what are you doing? Mm. Uh, so it'll make for yeah, I think some some awkwardness. Ed, this week, as I said, is NHS week, <laughs> which if if it goes anything like boats week, fills me with dread. Um, this is another area in which government is seen to be failing. So. What's the rationale? We started day one of NHS week, doctors are on strike and cancer targets are being dropped because we can never achieve them. So what's going on genuinely? What's happening? Yeah, I think if you're doing this series of weeks, you do kind of have to throw the public a bone and say, okay, well, this is one of your priorities. So we kind of just have to eat it. But why is it like someone else was going to raise it? It's not like I was going to come along and make it NHS week or boats week. Yeah, I I think it is like, or maybe they just ran out of ideas. There was nothing. All their other weeks were too nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Or trying to like get rid of devolution week or something like that. I don't know. I I love the fact that Sunak started with tech week and then (laughs) led to California. What are you doing? (laughs) What week are you doing? I'm doing tech week. (laughs) But do you think it's like, it's a case of, well, the cat's away so the mice can play? Because like Richard Sunak, he got to do his tech week, then jet off to California for his holiday and then all the more kind of mental figures within the Conservative Party were like, well, we're going to do our um, small boats week now. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, 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 it is bad politics, I guess, but they have to have one week. Maybe, yeah. maybe they, if, if you're having four, four or five weeks, one of them probably should be the NHS. I don't, it's just, just dreadful politics. Is it just they're complete gluttons for punishment? Or is it, or is it all like, or we get all the criticism of the NHS and confine it to one week. Yeah, because like it's going to go away. And then you know, people who are waiting for an yeah. operation will forget. They'll go, oh, no, that it's not NHS week. I'd like to be angry about it. There's always next but it's year. But yeah. it's not the right week for it. I have to wait till August next year. Remember, the important thing here is that Sunak does have a very, very nice beachfront house in California. <laughs> and <laughs> 10 weeks, a fabulous excuse to go there. Absolutely. I think also as well, is it... Is part of it, it's not news that the NHS is in a dire state. Nothing about the NHS is going to tank this government. Mm. Seth, as proof of that, the, the deficit in the aggregate polling between Labour and the Tories actually increased by one point during yep. Energy <laughs> Week and another one point during Boats Week. Does there come a point when Sunak might feel it's time to cut his losses and go to an election earlier than anticipated? Or a point when the party moves against him? It only takes 50-odd letters. Politicians are not as heavily in control of their destiny as they like to think that they are. Um, And so an acceptance of that, an acceptance of the... um, the Norman Lamont point of being in office but not in power means that actually you might be better off just shutting up in these cases. Or indeed, if you're finding that your campaigning is counterproductive, and there have been cases of this in the past, you're better off not campaigning and just getting on. Remember, the ultimate calculation that every incumbent government makes is they hope that the policy-making cycle and the economic cycle will coincide with the electoral cycle and that there'll be some amazing dividend in the six months running up to an election. Mm. But right now, the cupboard of policies is pretty bare and the government seems to be better off just trying to get back to work and delivering stuff. Now, there's no real sign of this working, but unless you think that things are going to get a million times worse as 2024 gets along, um, then... You see, the problem is that that's a rational Mm -hmm. calculation, (laughs) and fear rather dissolves that kind of rational calculation. So what I'm saying, I guess, is that what differential do MPs come back in September... Or if they have like a really bad conference this year, at what point do 40, 50 people begin to think maybe we just have to throw the dice? It's possible. But given that they went through three prime ministers in 2022 and their poll rating only got worse and it got decisively worse after trust and hasn't really recovered significantly since then, I think that greed trumps fear. 
And greed suggests that backbenchers are on 85k a year and ministers are on 130k a year, and they can string this out for nearly another 18 months. Uh, that's disgusting. Yep. <laughs> Right, next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Who deserves this week's palm d'or and who the face palm d'orer? <laughs> Seth, I'll start with you. My hero this week is the great Grand Shapps for his utter shamelessness in doing what's basically a commercial for JCB. Um, it's a very strange thing because it, it actually came up in his... Um, transparency disclosures, uh, even though it's free advertising from them, they haven't apparently given any money to directly to him. They have given vast sums of money to the Conservative Party. They are one of the largest donors in the history of the Conservative mm. Party. And then he's disclosed some um, free uh, travel and um, refreshments and entertainment while he was going out to do this commercial for them. And it really is, I mean, it's branded with JCB all over it. <laughs> it's, it's really not subtle. So um, quite how you can get a minister for hire like this, I don't know, but he's so generous and uh, he's really, you know, practicing what he preaches. In the... It's not in, it's not in his um, brief though. Oh no, wait, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's not like there's a conflict Again, who's your villain? Um, I know... Listeners will be familiar with my borderline obsession with the travails of Rudy Giuliani. But in the last week, there have been some very interesting transparency disclosures um, and you know some of the more eye-catching stuff around um, sexual harassment and sexual discrimination. But one of the really damning details is that the person suing him alleges that he coached her to lie to the FBI over the, um, the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, the first one uh, over Ukraine. That is very serious. Given the existing investigations going on right now around obstruction of justice, I would be very surprised if law enforcement in the US hasn't already taken a keen interest in that. And the six unnamed fellow indictees. Um, yes. I wonder if one of them is Rudy. <laughs> Yasmin, how about you? So my, um, my hero of the week is England's women's team, um, because after the I talked a big game before the World Cup started about how the U.S. was going to win for the third time and it would be historic and it'd be amazing. And then obviously I jinxed us, so they got <laughs> sent out quite early. Um, but England beat Colombia on Saturday and what was a very good match. And so they're my only hope left, basically. Okay. Um, so they're my heroes. And as for, for votes, I like it. Basically, yeah. <laughs> um, and as for villains, uh, to be honest, I've been away for a week and just completely switched off. So this might be a bit dated, but I'm still kind of haunted by Matt Hancock's um, Ken video. It kind of ruined. I, one of my favorite things about the Barbie movie was all the memes, all the delicious memes that it served on the Internet. I thought some people did some really creative things with it. And then I saw that. And it's just going to ruin them all for me. He so. just poisoned them all, didn't Yeah, he? like I've had a enough now, so I'm yeah. done. Anyway, um, so yeah, he's my he's my. Opponent. Okay, what about you, Ed? Uh, yeah, mine's slightly different, football-related still. So my, my hero is actually an unnamed Newcastle fan who, as Harvey Barnes celebrated his goal against Aston Villa uh -huh. on Saturday, Harvey Barnes does this arrow-firing celebration. Yeah, yeah. And this <laughs> Newcastle fan mimed catching the arrow and firing it back with such grace and poise that I thought it was it went um, very viral yesterday until oh, um, until the rights holders claimed it. So it might it was available to watch in the official highlights. I'm pretty sure it was just this like old bald man from Newcastle just doing like a, a mime show for everyone <laughs> for specifically for Harvey Barnes. Go look it up. And your villain? Uh, maybe a default answer at this point, but I think uh, Lee Anderson. And his comments about <laughs> <laughs> asylum seekers should, I don't know, I think we should we should just always be wary of what he said. Although we are oversaturated by hateful statements about asylum seekers, it's good to kind of point them out and just see how atrocious they actually are. Yeah, really, we could do a special prize for Lee every week, couldn't we? Um, but I have made my decision. I have to give it to the lionesses because... When this comes out, they'll actually be playing. Yeah. So <laughs> come on. Um, uh, and we'll be lynched if we don't. Um, so yes, uh, yes to the Lionesses for Heroes of the Week. And 
I think I'm going to have to go with Rudy Giuliani just because it's Rudy yeah, fucking Giuliani. That's I mean, just about the only you know, time he wins anything these days. <laughs> yeah. Literally, his photo is now next to the word villain in the dictionary. <laughs> so I couldn't go any other way. Now, there are plenty of moments in recent politics that have made us want to run away like the nope badger. But what meme made you cringe so hard you faulted in on yourself like an armadillo in denial? Michael Gove tweeting, I said, trends man copy after Storms endorsed Labour. Was it Johnny Mercer asking someone whether they insinuated his wife was a prostitute on the Plymouth Herald comment section? Or something as simple as Dominic Raab winking at Angela Rayner? Can anything beat the classic Ed Balls? Are virals just fun, or can they genuinely influence politicians and politics? Ed, I have to come to you first, right? Because part of the politics, Joe, model is precisely that repackaging of political news as potentially viral, edible bonbons. What's the secret to something cutting through? Do you have a pretty good idea when you're putting something out whether it will do it or not, as it were? Yeah, I think kind of the... The secret, it sounds quite obvious, but the secret to creating content for social media is that there needs to be a shareable sentiment. It needs to make you angry or sad or make you laugh. Mm. There needs to be a reason that the person seeing it would retweet it or send it a message or show it to a friend. And I think that in a lot of kind of social first content, uh, that's missed slightly. I think mm. in the maybe in the interest of, of balance or in a lack of, or, or a case of like, oh, we've got this quite dry news reports about like, a local news and they're like, oh, we've got this content, so we'll just put it on social and then it doesn't do well because it's not that interesting yeah, to yeah, people. Yeah. Um, emotion drives sharing stuff on social media. I think that's the cut. Yeah. I, I mean, at the same time, can it be overdone? I remember a time when I, I got slightly jaded by the uh, sort of, oh my God, this is the funniest thing you will ever see. And it's like, well, how many... <laughs> funniest <laughs> things I will ever see can uh -huh. I see in a week. Mm -hmm. So is there is there a balance to be struck or do you have to go for it every time? Like, you know, I'm so angry. I'm... Yeah, I, I think there is people, people do react to the language that you use mm. and you want people to watch the video, but you also don't want to mislead them and so, yes. say that. So yes. you use like emotive language like um, Lindsay Hoyle rages yeah. at the government because he's angry. So it might be a slight exaggeration. I'm in some, in some, in some, <laughs> but it's, um, you, you, need, you need to, there is a balance to be struck. I think there is the negative reaction as well. Uh, has social media, do you think, in a way, radicalized? And I use the word in its mildest sort of vanilla context, certain MPs. What I mean is, do some MPs now deliberately reach for the short, sharp thing that they think might become a a viral little video because they do attack each other on that basis. I've seen loads of MPs going, oh, well done. Well, you got your Twitter video for the day. And so they must be aware of it, right? Yeah, I think there is. I think quite often we see people do a, something stunty in the comments and we think, that was for us. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was for us. For example, um, Don Butler, when she was um, chucked out the Commons for calling Boris Johnson a liar, yeah. regardless of like, her, she was right, she was very, she was right to do it, but at the back of her mind, she would have been thinking, "This is going to be clipped. I will. Yeah. I'm going to get. I'm going to become a legend this week. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think, um, but then conversely, some of our best clips are just MPs being very good at their job, mm. like Darren Jones in select committees. He's kind of made a name for himself by holding um, big big business chairs to account. And we've got like compilations on YouTube of hundreds of thousands of views of Darren Jones just being thorough and good at his job. Yvette Cooper as well, when she goes up against Willa Braverman. There is there's something to be said about a lot of the good content isn't or like overly performative or like because some MPs do DM politics Joe on Twitter yeah. with a link to their speech. And you think that is the most boring thing I've ever, <laughs> I've ever seen in your life. But I also think there's a when MPs kind of clip their own stuff. They kind of forget they're no longer in control of the narrative mm. of it because there is that in the social element of it. People can reply, "You're a dickhead," and they don't <laughs> like that. And so I think they they forget about the kind of the two way element of it. Seth, 
Have politicians not always done that in a way? Aren't memes simply today's headlines? Wouldn't Churchill be sort of eminently memeable if you were around today? Yes, and Churchill's a really good example of that, actually, because um, he actively cultivated and thought about his image. I mean, there are stories about him going off uh, to make a speech and grabbing his cigar and his hat and saying, mustn't forget my props. Mm. You know, Churchill used to smoke about 15 to 20 cigars a day, but he never smoked them for more than two or three minutes because he was very um, conscious of what he called being seen with a comically short cigar. So he was always being seen lighting up cigars, but he never actually smoked the whole thing. Oh, um, and indeed, you know, when he was being painted, he said to an artist, uh, which are you going to do today, the bulldog or the cherub? He was very, very conscious of how that hmm. goes. And this goes really right back to, I think, the late 18th century. You start with someone like James Gilray, you move on to artists like Cruikshank and Rowlandson. They're caricaturing, they're being relentless in their caricatures of politicians. But that has stayed with us. And if you think about the, particularly the prime ministers in history who come to mind, you know, Pitt the Younger, Disraeli, Gladstone, Macmillan, Thatcher, they're all a gift to cartoonists. Mm -hmm. They really are. And they play that up to a certain element. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned Dawn Butler earlier, and actually the master of that kind of uh, thing was um, Dennis Skinner, yeah, you know, yeah. with his parliamentary Absolutely. opposition and things. He wasn't thinking in terms of memes, but he certainly was thinking, I'm building up a record of, you know, raging in the corner and being angry about this. And we now have those compilation videos on YouTube of all the things where once a year on the Queen's speech, Dennis Skinner would say something pithy and short, which would make the evening news. So politicians do think in visual terms. And one really interesting point on this actually is how politicians have tried to control a lot of this, because we often overlook that the legislation from 1988, which allows them to televise Parliament, has very strict restrictions in place banning the use of parliamentary footage to this day for satirical or comedy purposes. And that is why you'll see politicians made fun of outside of the chamber. And I can think of loads of ridiculous things that have gone on in a chamber in full view of the cameras, and you never see that being mocked because it's still a criminal offence to do that. Mm, interesting. Um, on what you said, social media has been around now for just over two decades. Are they training them a lot better? Because I mean, despite the occasional gaffes, they seem to me to be more regimented than in the early days of Wild West social media where loads of them got into trouble. Yeah. Um, it used to be the case that if you had a blog, you'd be someone like John Hemming or Tom Watson who was considered a little bit geeky and mm -hmm. a little bit weird. And also it would look really amateurish as a website. And those early cases really are almost a lesson in what not to do yeah. on the internet. Um, now, I think part of it is also, you know, there's a tradition of buying brains in politics, but you also buy marketing and comms people to actually run these accounts for you. Yes, I mean... Labour's social media in the Corbyn years seemed a lot more switched on, actually. Mm. Um, and I wonder, do you think that is a conscious choice? Has Starmer decided a more po-faced approach to online was the way to go because sort of seriousness and not getting involved with that stuff is sort of his thing? I think that's part of it. I feel like he still has that prosecutor persona. Yeah. Um, very serious. And I mean, I think if you think back to who the average Corbyn supporter was, I mean, I, I don't have the numbers, but I think like visually, you think of a lot of young people. I think mm -hmm. Corbyn did tap into kind of like a very young sort of base. And where are young people? They're online. Um, and, and Corbyn generally just seemed a bit more, you know, it, it didn't come off as too forced, I think, yeah. when he would do something like that. Whereas Starmer, you know, when I had, when Time had our conversation with him in February, you know, he told me very plainly, you know, where I'm trying to appeal to people who didn't vote for us the last time. Now, if that's, you know, older people who perhaps aren't online or on Facebook only, who live in the Red Wall, then, you know, maybe you don't need to be quite as internet savvy um, as that. But also, I think fundamentally to your point, it's just because he, he and Sunak, I think, are both kind of quite serious. But he Sunak really... is very sort of vanity fair little videos <laughs> you know he he definitely the boots, the milk he boots, definitely yeah. has a an online marketing that's true thing going on but, yeah. but it seems to also backfire quite a lot with him like people watch it and they think i don't want to see that i don't you know i don't buy this stuff of you in the you know 
on a beach in the sunset with your golden retriever. I don't. You, it's a lie. Yeah, and I think that's perhaps part of the reason that we don't see Starmer doing that as much. I remember for the profile speaking to to some friends of his who said that he can't really pretend to be yeah. something he's yeah. not. Yeah. And and I think that's perhaps why we're not seeing that side of him because he just can't force it. Have there been campaigns specifically for social media that have really stuck that you look at and think this is how to do it? The only thing that really springs to mind, and maybe this is quite damning, is the post that Labour did, which said that Rishi Sunak doesn't think paedophiles should go to prison. Mm. Because it was so shocking. Because yeah. it's also interesting. untrue. I think Rishi Sunak thinks paedophiles should be in prison. But I think there is this... So there is a lot of focus in social media campaign and I, there will be a lot of brain power and planning going into how will we create this slate of content ahead of the next election. But I, th- I think it is, um, it's hard to do well, especially from a really managerial point of view. I think the kind of more organic content would do well. But, re- but if, if you look at um, the one thing that, Labour keep trying to do with Starmer is talk about him supporting Arsenal, and he gets rinsed every time because which is which is bizarre because he's an Arsenal season ticket holder yet he supports yeah. Arsenal all his life. It's probably the what the most the most authentic thing about him, the one thing that most people in this country can relate to, yeah. and everyone just takes the piss out of him for it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's very hard, but it, but unfortunately is the way to to reach young people because young people won't watch linear television so they won't see this part of the political broadcast. Can I wrap it up by asking you a question in the opening to the two of you because mm. I would like to know what you think as well. Is the influence of social media and politics on the rise or on the wane, do you think, Ed? Are parties gearing up for a primarily online campaign like last one or returning to more traditional grassroots bit of door knocking I vacillate between the two. Sometimes I think online is going to be huge. And other times I think, I look at the by-elections and I think what actually worked was people on the ground sort of making people go and vote. I, I suppose also as well, in line with people door knocking, etc., there would have been targeted ads on Facebook that would have been geolocated mm. to the to the people who had who could have voted in those by-elections. I think the, the two things go hand in hand. I think the online stuff will be kind of the national story of the general election. And the door knocking stuff is much more about local issues. I went to Lee Anderson's constituency in maybe, it was around the time he was making comments about the death penalty. And people I spoke to, because we were just asking about the death penalty. And quite a lot of people were like, I don't really care what he said about the death penalty. Do you know what I care about? This cycling path that the council wasted money on. And that's all people wanted to talk about. It was was actually quite funny. I can't remember the figure, but say they, they spent... Thousands of pounds on a cycle path that went around Ashfield, and multiple people told me they, don't, they were like, "I've not seen a single cyclist on it." And so, <laughs> so their MP was advocating for the return of the death penalty, and that was what people online were talking about. But the much more salient issue, the much more, the, the election will be won by people people on a, NHS waiting lists, people. By, by yeah. anyone who promises to give the death penalty to cyclists. That would be, that'd be a real vote winner. Uh, to, for, for, for let's not give them any ideas. <laughs> what, do, what, do you, what do you think, Seth? What cuts through is spontaneity, and yes. that doesn't matter about the medium. So 2017 was a really good election to highlight the differences because the, the Corbynista sort of memes were spontaneous. They were you know user-generated. They were amateurish, but actually mm. they made a, a real... Um, they made a real uh, asset out of that. The Tories, on the other hand, in 2017, had these amazingly technically brilliant adverts where you have Theresa May giving you the national message, strong and stable leadership, and then 30 seconds of her naming the candidate, which you cut to. And it looked terrible because she looked exhausted. She'd named 650 <laughs> candidates one after the other. She spent the whole afternoon doing this, clearly. Um, and however technically brilliant it was, it didn't work. By 2019, the Tories had really caught up. They'd gone through an agency that made these things look a little bit more spontaneous, a little bit better. But the last thing on this is I think we hugely overrate the importance of what happens in the election. Only three to five percent of votes actually change during a general election campaign. Most of the change happens now between elections. Mm. And so what's going on right now in the next 12, 18 months, that's going to shift ground. What about you, Yasmin, especially with a little lie over the Atlantic as well? Yeah, I mean, I I still think I'm inclined to 
agree with Ed on on the point that I think for for local issues, you know, having that that in person touch helps. But I think for so many people, and I think this is particularly true in the U.S., it's not just that you have to meet people where they are, they're at. And in a big national election like a U.S. presidential, a lot of people are online. So I think for better or worse. You have to be online to that. That has to be where a discussion is happening. So whilst it's true that social media can be an echo chamber and whilst it's true that um, Twitter, thank heavens, is not real life, I, I do think that these things do influence. Mm. They, they do have an effect on real life. So I fully expect, at least with regard to the U.S. Um, election coming up, that, that we're going to be seeing a lot happening in, in the Internet. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. When we're not scrolling Hansard with our head in our hands, what are we doing to get away from the world of politics? Seth, let me start with you. Can I just pay a tribute at this time of year to straw hats? <laughs> okay. Is that is that it? Yeah. Is it <laughs> just straw hats? Glorious. Just lack of heat. Yes. I, I think this is one of the best escape routes we've had. It's... It's practically performance art, I think, just straw hat. How about you, Yasmin? Um, so I recently read Curtis um, Sittenfield's not-so-recent novel, Rodham, which um, is basically this sort of – it reimagines what would have happened if Hillary hadn't married Bill Clinton. Yeah. Um, it, it was kind of my my first foray into a book that's like an alternative future and – I just love that genre. It was so good. I had to like consistently remind myself that it wasn't real because <laughs> I find myself having like visceral hatred like towards Phil Clinton. I, but that's the only bit of spoiler you're going to I find get. that with a good fight <laughs> because it follows the tracks, the timeline of political events so closely. Yes. But then it kind of diverges and you have to remind yourself that no – the PP tape was never seen. <laughs> it was like it was like watching The Crown, where you're just constantly googling. Like I was yeah. reading and googling. Like this that thing, interview happened. Yeah. <laughs> Ed, how about you? Um, I would recommend watching How to with John Wilson on BBC iPlayer. It's this fascinating documentary series, which is essentially a monologue put to B-roll around uh, New York City, and it each has the premise of how to uh, make small talk. Right. And so it begins like, oh, you can speak to a New Yorker. But then they meet someone and they follow that thread and they pull that thread and they go to uh, Peterfell Hunters in Pennsylvania. And then they meet, then they travel to Mexico. It's 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 brilliant. It's um, executive produced by Nathan Fielder of Nathan For You fame. So I would highly recommend that. Oh, one sounds wonderful. Yeah. And it's not one I'd heard of. Um, I've been enriching myself spiritually, I hasten to add, I don't play for money. Um, I've been learning a bit of Omaha high-low poker. It's incredibly complicated because basically the, the pot splits in half and the shittest hand can get half the pot. Oh, wow. And so the betting is incredibly complicated. <laughs> and occasionally you can have a hand that is both fantastic and shit. It's a. It's been wonderful. I've been reading books about it and watching videos and playing with you know with no money, just with sort of points or chips or whatever. And it's been brilliant. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? With I think you will agree a smorgasbord of suggestions <laughs> to take forward. Um, thank you, Yasmin. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Seth. Thanks, Alex. And thanks to our guest Ed Campbell. Thank you. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. I hope you are. Thanks for listening to Oh God, What Now? See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andrei with Yasmin Sahan and Seth Tevon. The producer was Chris Jones and the audio editor is me, Robin Lieber. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. 